Whether you're going veggie or vegan for 2019, or just looking for some easy ways to mix up your mealtimes, Sainsbury's has loads of new and exciting meat-free alternative options. Like Sainsbury's Love Your Veg Shroom Balls with Jackfruit, Edamame Coconut and Lemongrass Falafels, or Roasted Butternut and Charred Broccoli Pizza. No wonder Sainsbury's was named Best Supermarket for Vegan Food 2018 in the Vegan Food UK Awards. Check out the range in selected stores and online. Today we're down with ADP, yeah you know me, the Juventus legend, the quiet champion, a man who survived it all, a busted knee, Serie B, partnering with Inzaghi, Alessandro the Great of Golazzo. Del Piero esterno straordinario e la Juventus è in vantaggio. Quando sembrava che ormai le due squadre fossero quasi padre del 2 a 2 Del Piero. Yep, if you were in front of your TV or the Deli Alpi on the 4th of December 1994, you will not forget that a moment. Or perhaps that curiously low-key Bruno Pitzel commentary, perhaps the most famous goal of the decade along with that one from Giorgi Ware. That was Del Piero winning in the 87th minute. An absolutely crucial tie as Juventus made their way back to title glory. A young Alessandro Del Piero. We've got a young Gabriele Marcotti here in the Galato HQ. Read a look back on this quiet man who became the biggest player at the biggest club in Italy. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. Like He was supposed to do what Italian clubs, especially back then, expected talented young players to do. Either we send you endlessly on loan or you come and you sit behind the adults. And obviously he came to, I don't know if you have the squad list there, but the whole notion was that he would come into a Juve side and back up Roberto Baggio, who, you know, was only Roberto Baggio, right? The, the most expensive uh, player in the history of Italian football at, at the time or, or, or right around there. It caused all sorts of chaos and, and controversy when he signed. Very, very soon after he arrived, the uh, club was like, you know what? Like, Maybe we should put all our eggs in this younger guy's basket who earns a lot less money and doesn't have too bad knees, actually runs around the pitch, follows orders. Yeah, Roberto Baggio, the biggest player in the world in the early 90s. And that squad list, since you mentioned it, Peruzzi as the first-choice keeper. At the back, you've got the likes of Julio Cesar, Jürgen Kohler, uh, Torricelli. Jürgen Kohler, der Weltmeister. <laughs> exactly. Champion of the world. Dino Baggio in midfield, a certain Antonio Conte, Angelo Di Livioso, Latino. Antonio Conte with hair. Andres Muller. And then up front... Machine. This was the team, the basically the year that Del Piero joined. Baggio, Del Piero, Ravanelli and Gianluca Vialli. Extraordinary. So we, we start with that goal, but there are some, what do you think of when you think of Del Piero? The 19 seasons that he had at Juve. In terms of Del Piero on the pitch, what I think of most is those long-range goals, obviously, like the... The goal the a la Del, Del Piero. Yeah, because... And it always seemed to sort of... It always seems to me, like in my memory... It's not just one of those long-range strikes where he's, you know, he's running at pace or he's facing a goal, but there always seems to involve kind of like a little swivel of the hips before, and then he kind of strikes the ball through it. 
And we've seen other people sort of go and generate power and accuracy from long-range strikes. But he had his sort of very own way to do it, which which fit his body type. And, you know, I think in terms of technical ability, he was he was right up there. Mm. Yeah, one of the few players to have essentially a signature move that became part of, certainly in Italy, the kind of footballing vocabulary. All right, well, th- there's so many other stories. The goal at the World Cup, the tongue hanging out, the day of his goodbye. And, of course, that... Amazing uh, standing ovation at the Bernabeu after he'd scored a brace in that really unexpected, glorious second part of his career. But let's start with that goal against Fiorentina and a little bit of Alessandro's pal, Eros. Eros Ramazzotti obviously liked football and was friends with a number of, of footballers. He went to this phase where he owned his own plane and he, you know, he often traveled around Europe and it was like a running joke among certain Juve players at the time that if they needed to go somewhere and, you know, time was tight or whatever to make an appearance, if Eros wasn't on tour, hey, let's call him up and see if he wants to, you know, come along to go to, like, the Puma store in Lisbon. Uh, if he had an airline, he could call it Eros. He could have called it Eros. Yeah. In fact, that happened to me once. When did you fly with Eros Ram- Ramazzotti? No, I was shut out of it. Um, we had to go, I think it was, we went to interview Marcello Lippi in Turin and Luciano Moggi as well, actually. Me and Gianluca Vialli when we wrote the Italian job. And... I remember, you know, nice meal, nice day in Turin, and we're driving back to back to Milan, and Luca's like, he gets like a text or something, or he does something with his phone, and he's like, and he's like, oh, um, you know what? I might not come back with you on your flight, and I'm like, okay, like, yeah, I, I think I'm gonna get a ride with with Eros Ramazzotti. He's flying anyway, and I'm like. Okay, like, you know, we both live in London. But so, no, so as it turned out, you know, I sat there like a fool for three hours at Malpensa eating crappy food while I called him to see how he was getting on. And he was like back in London, like before my flight had even taken off, thanks to the powers of Eros Ramazzotti. There's a great clip of um, Ali actually joining Eros on stage in, in Sydney, I guess. And he sang really badly like like this. So then I discovered that this was a frequent thing. Like, you know, some of when he was time off, he loved flying to different European cities, so... You know, he was basically the, the aero Uber of his day. You would wow. just ring him up and be like, hey, you want to go here for a couple hours? And be like, sure. You know. What a nice guy. Anyway, so now we were talking about that goal, which I think of all the many Del Piero memories, that's perhaps the definitive one. And it's the the first real moment that I think he caught everyone's attention. He'd done well at Padova in Serie B, well enough for... Juve to spring a little under two million. Obviously, these were different times for him. Again, context. I think back then the record 
in England was would have been around three and a half million. And this was a teenager as this well. This is nineteen ninety two. Yeah. Well, let's go back to that day in 1994. And a little bit of context then here, Gab. Bajo is out. This is the biggest player in the world. So Bajo is out. You know, Juventus, as, as you mentioned, and as we talked about before, they're really banging their heads against the wall because it's been so long since they won the title. Milan are absolutely dominating in Serie A. They've had that incredible and beat streak. They're like the symbol of the well-run club. And Juventus, who for a long time throughout the 80s, obviously they're a wealthy club, but they always kind of made it a point of saying, well, we're not just going to go and throw money around on big name signings and stuff like that. You know, we'll pick and choose. We'll find our own stars like Michel Platini and stuff like that, who, you know, he didn't spend a lot of money for, but was actually out of contract when they signed him. Hmm. And after all that, you know, people get angry. And so around 1990 is when everything changes. And that's when they start chucking huge amounts of money around. Obviously, they sign Roberto Baggio. They, they sign Casiraghi for a lot of money as well. Gianluca Vialli for an absolute fortune. And they're just desperate. But Milan just keep winning. And, mm. and partly they're outspending them. Partly they make better choices. And so, you know, this season, again, they've got this, this incredible lineup of talent on paper. And then this was a goal that kind of show that, yeah, we can compete. Right. And it, it actually kind of sparked them on their way to what was their first title in, in nine years. So it's December. It was a freezing day at the Delhi Up. And we were there because it was the, the big game of that week. Juve taking on Fiorentina, always a massive affair. And it was going really, really badly. Marcello Lippi, who'd become Juve manager, watching on as his team go two goals behind to the to a Fiorentina side who in those days were one of the Sette Sorelle, one of the, the seven notional contenders for the title any given season. And they were absolutely rocking the the Deli Alpi. 20 minutes to go. They had this two-goal lead. Then Gianluca Vialli pops up with two goals in the space of three minutes. So at least you're going to get a point. The 87th minute, though, all of a sudden, a ball gets hoofed upfield from... The legendary Alessandro Orlando, who's the man who had arrived from Milan in a straight swap with Paolo Di Canio. There you go. So Orlando, who's more or less at the halfway line, lobs a desperate ball upfield. The just-turned-20-year-old Alessandro Del Piero running onto it, and without the ball even touching the ground, that masterpiece. Del Piero has made the run! Oh, what a goal for Del Piero! That's a beauty! The season before was, was the season he arrived, the 93-94 season. They played him in the Primavera, the Youth Academy, and they won the, the Viareggio Tournament, which is sort of this big youth tournament they have in Italy. But he was just so good that he started playing in the first team. And that first season, he got some European football, and he played 11 times in Serie A, you know, almost exclusively as a sub, but scored five goals. And I think that's when they realized we have something, we have something special on our hands. And that's a big part of the reason why they felt comfortable going into the season with Ravanelli, Vialli, Baggio, backed up by Del Piero. They figured you've got sort of two central strikers, you've got a, a fantasista like Baggio, and you have another fantasista backing him up like Del Piero. That's actually pretty light by the standards of, of, of Serie A back then, especially mm. when you know Baggio had all his knee injuries. Yeah. But still, that's how highly they thought of him. Right. With 19 seasons he went on to have 
with Juventus. That first spell until 98, where there was kind of the watershed of that knee injury, was classic Del Piero. That's where the goal a la Del Piero, that's where they really came to the fore. He would classically receive the ball just on the kind of left-hand side of the penalty box, maybe shimmy past a couple of defenders and then curl one into the top far corner. Again yeah. and again in Europe and Italy everywhere. Stop fantastico di Del Piero. Incredibile aggancio, volante. Prova il tiro, rientra ancora. Incredibile, incredibile. Ancora lui. Alzata di Del Piero, uno contro uno con Kohler. Ancora Del Piero, cerca lo spazio per il tiro. Ancora Del Piero. E il suo pallonetto, un gol stupendo. Un gol incredibile da parte di Del Piero. Alessandro Del Piero. With that typical swivel that, and, and turn that, that, that I talked about earlier. It was remarkable. What was remarkable about that period, too, is don't forget, 95-96, they win the Champions League uh, in Rome on penalty kicks against Ajax. And it is this, this, this front three of Vialli, Ravanelli, and Del Piero. And even back then, what strikes you and what really set him apart was how hard he worked. You know, this was something that you know, we were used to fantasisti like like Roberto Baggio, like um, like Mancini, like dating myself, but got to represent for Inter as well, the legendary Evaristo Beccalossi, Beck, who who wouldn't, you know, they're like, all right, our, my job here is to be the flair player, the luxury player, right? Del Piero, you know, he was like those puppy dogs who you just throw the ball and just runs, 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 runs. You know, despite being, obviously, initially... Later it would change, but very physically slight. He interpreted that perfectly, and he gave them like Juventus of physicality coupled with technique that very few teams had at that time. Yeah, he also earned a nickname from uh, Lavocato Gianni Agnelli. Yeah, he called him uh, Pinturicchio mm. when he started out, and the thinking there was. I mean, classically, the Agnelli nicknames generally were a little bit disparaging. Though I think this certainly felt like a little bit of a snub. The little painter, a guy who was kind of in the city of B of Renaissance painting. But I think he had compared Baggio to Raffaello, who is, you know, probably some would say next to That was one of the nicknames. Do you remember the Cornelio Bagnato was the other one? Yeah, the Cornelio Bagnato, the wet rabbit, yeah. But but this was, but when he came with the Pinturicchio, it was within the context of of Raffaello. And Raffaello, probably along with Giotto, the greatest. Italian Renaissance painter. And then when they asked him about the Del Piero stuff, it was a way of saying like, okay, well, were he with us today? And Yelly would say, well, you know, I did it because I didn't want to put pressure on, uh, on on Del Piero or feel that Baggio would be undermined. So he called them sort of Pinturicchio, who's a sort of minor, sort of eternal apprentice type figure. Um, because I think at the time too, he he had really bought into that idea that, you know, he's, he had to bide his time. Um, little did he know, of course, that... His time was now. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. 19 seasons Del Piero spent at Juve, 11 of them as captain. He owns the club records for most goals and appearances. He was player of the year in 1997, and then remarkably, again, 11 years later, in 2008... In between the two, you had another pivotal moment in his career, 
again in winter up in Udine in 1998 after that World Cup, which had seen what seemed to be a little bit his story with the national team. Disappointments, missed opportunities at a crucial moment in that quarterfinal with, with France. And then in a 2-2 draw away at Udinese, right at the, at the, in the final minutes, uh, he does his anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments. And all of a sudden, uh, this incredible career looks like it's just hit the buffers. Yeah, and and that World Cup so often happened, again, you know, marked by sort of Roberto Baggio, who always seemed to kind of reappear whenever there was a, a major tournament. You know, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to what he achieved later in career and how he extended his longevity. Mm. For a lot of people, including me, uh, you know, if I were to write a letter to my younger self, I would have said, man, you got Del Piero all wrong, because I thought he was done after the injury. Mm. Um, it took him a long time. He missed the rest of that season. And I think it took him a while to get back to, to being, as you say, he changed. There's a debate that he maybe never did, mm. you know, um, and that he had to reinvent himself uh, as a footballer. I was never a big Del Piero fan, not because I couldn't appreciate his ability or because he played like played for Juventus, but because he kind of felt, post-injury, he felt manufactured, right? He felt like the kind of guy who, I think in 2000, he signed some sort of enormous contract and was the highest paid player in, in the world or, or close to it. He felt like something that, okay, so Juventus have poured all this money into him. He's not the player he was before. We don't blame him. He was just injured. He wasn't even somebody who necessarily generated emotions because he was so quiet, so low key. You know, he'd get, he'd get fouled, fall over. And he'd never, he'd never complain or remonstrate. He always had this kind of little, like, sort of ironic half smile, rueful grin. Yeah, which which drove other people crazy. The other yeah. thing too is, you know, and I'm not making fun of this, but between him and Inzaghi, in those years, yeah. Um, I'm so, not saying they didn't get fouled all the time and won legitimate penalties, right. but within the context of the narrative of Italian football, yeah. all these fouls that Juve seemed to get all the time, and it was always the two of them, you know, it did kind of feel like, you know, hey, you deplorables, get back in your basket because the deep state's taking over, you know? Well, the, it's interesting you mentioned Inzaghi because that was uh, a partnership which started well and then rapidly went off the rails, and, and uh, they, they were very much... Uh, how would you say in English, uh, separati in casa, no? the two two players coexisting? The odd couple. But, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of that had to do as well with with personality. Because, you know, Pippo Inzaghi is, is, is Pippo God, right? You know, sex, yoga, and rock and roll. Like, he, he is the guy who's always in your face. He's In some ways, he's the opposite of Del Piero, right? Because Inzaghi did not have all this technical ability. He does not have all this natural ability. Um, you talk to most people, tell you his brother, Simone, was a far more skillful player than Pippo Inzaghi. What Pippo Inzaghi had was this incredible tenacity, which Del Piero also had. But Inzaghi had to kind of earn and fight and scrap all the way through. He was also, I want to call him selfish because it seems like a cliche when we call strikers selfish. But yeah, he's the kind of guy who sort of you know, shoot from 40 yards out. He wouldn't necessarily, he worked hard on the pitch, but he didn't necessarily work hard within the context of the team or he wasn't seen like that. Mm. Whereas Del Piero was the opposite. Del Piero did everything the manager asked of him all the time. And there was a season when 
whether these two would ever pass between them became the big story in Italian football that everyone was, was always talking about and always interviewing them, you know, what is going on between the two of them. I think this is all mostly one way, to be honest. Right. You know, I, I still think this was Inzaghi bitching and moaning and fitting into that narrative of Del Piero is just a construct, you know. We're trying to keep alive somebody who was great but is no more. Do you remember when, and this must have been awkward for him, Juve, in the spirit of trying to create a sense of affection for uh, this player and, and the club, made Del Piero into their, their mascot. They invented this this kind of uh, symbol called Alex, a cartoon figure called Alex, and each match day there was a, a guy in a, in a great big Alex outfit. And it was clearly a reference to Del Piero. The, he was yeah. kind of like a, a generic boy figure, but with dark hair and looked similar to, to Del Piero, similar nose. And it was almost like they were trying to create a, a real kind of sense of uh, him being some kind of cultural phenomenon. Was that after the knee injury in 98? Well, I think it was probably no, before. It was before. Yeah. It was but, before. But it certainly fed into that whole feeling that Juve had decided this guy was going to be a star. And at the time, it did feel he was probably going to be one of the well, world greats. He was a star. And he would have been one of the world greats, if not. I mean, and he, arguably he still was. Yeah. But there was that period from, you know, where you felt like he was kind of being shoved down your throats by the powers that be and people could see through him. And there was a lot of skepticism. You know, I think there was a belief that, you know, when Juve won the title in 0102, the the, the, the first Lippi title post-Ancelotti, that, you know, he was kind of a passenger. And then, you know, when they won those titles again, the the, the two that, that were stripped, unlawfully, of course, Mr. Agnelli, um, because of Calciopoli, again, he was there, but, you know, it was Trezeguet and Ibrahimovic, and he was a passenger, and Capello was kind of tolerating him. And it felt as if he's not really the reason there. He gets paid this enormous amount of money, but it's other people doing the heavy lifting. And he was kind of kind of a pet of the Agnellis. Although for me, I think that changed because, again, you'd had, uh, uh, returning to this idea of the fact that Del Piero was almost mandated by the powers that be, I think that certainly came through with Italy. 98, when a lot of people felt Badger was the natural four for, for Christian Vieira, and it seemed that way on the pitch, but Del, Del Piero got the nod against France in the quarterfinal. In 2000, Del Piero comes on, misses huge opportunities. Badger's not the question this time, but Italy go out to the, the golden goal. But then the redemption of 2006, his goal in the... No, that's the siege. That's the siege change. 2006. 2006. What happens in that... I mean, we, we, we've touched upon that, that World Cup. And I, I think when the Champions League final was in Cardiff... Del Piero was there doing media and he spent some time with us with the SPN and he was very forthcoming. He had, a, he had a big chat off camera about his life at the time. Of course, he ended up moving to Australia and then to LA. With uh, a brief parenthesis in India, in Delhi. Yeah, although that was one of those weirdo like IPL type things where you're there for eight weeks. But yeah, and he he talked about how that World Cup experience was... You know, he's like, he had all these kind of older players who are used to being superstars and who there were question marks about at that stage because they were older and it's him and it was, it was taught to him, they kind of all put it to one side and, and Leapy kind of made it work. And I will never forget, uh, for obvious reasons, you know, because it's Germany, the epic semifinal, uh, the Westfalen Stadion, I was there, how in a game where 
you know, for most of it, Germany were were on the front foot, and they're kind of getting battered, and it goes into it goes into extra time, or it's you know, it's, or it's clearly going to go into extra time. Maybe penalties, and Italy are hanging on. Marcello Lippi's solution is to send on Iaquinta and Del Piero. So he sends on two more strikers, right? Defensive Italian football. And Del Piero says, and he basically told us, like, go and just work your butt off like a defender. But the minute you get the ball, remember who you are. And Del Piero, what he did in that game on both sides, just defending with the whole crowd against him because obviously it's the World Cup in, Ger in Germany. And then, of course, you know, popping up at the other end. Gilardino setting up Del Piero's goal. I mean, that was absolutely tremendous. I think right. that World Cup was a World Cup which signaled to a lot of people in Italy that, you know what, Del Piero isn't really kind of this wet fish. Like, he is somebody who, he's not just a construct. He suffered with the rest of us. Yeah. And, and he was going to suffer more. Because that summer then, Juve make their famous trip down to Serie B. And there's an exodus of stars, Cannavaro, Zambrotta, Vieira, Ibrahimovic, Turan, all make their way out of the club. Del Piero and Buffon famously stay on. So this guy's just won the, the world title and now there he is in, in Serie B making his way around, around the Campionato Cadetto. But I think there was a sense from Del Piero, I think he said it at the time, like, you know, I won a load of titles, I won a World Cup, I won the Champions League. This is my team. This is me giving back to Juve. Um, and let's face it too, with the wages he was on, it's not as if other teams were queuing up that's to fair. go and sign Del Piero. And he was he was very honest about this. And I go back to his image, you know, I remember Del Piero lived with his mom until until he got married. Um, I remember an interview where he talked about, you know, how he went to a, this must have been like, oh, two or three or something, about how Madonna came to Padova, I think, or somewhere on tour. And he went to the, you know, he was like, yeah, I went to the Madonna concert with my mom. And it's like, you know, you're you're a footballer in your late 20s. And, you know, one of his big things would like, he'd sit around the kitchen table with his family. When I say family, I mean his parents, because at the time he said he didn't get married until later, you know, and play cards or, or play board games on a Friday night. This isn't really in keeping with kind of the superstar ethos. So there, there definitely was... Uh, simplicity to him and when we say he went on a journey I think that's that's a big part of it mm -hmm. as well Lasso! 2008 then he he's once again player of the year I mean that's how they've returned to Serie A they're, they're not enjoying the successes that they will do later under Antonio Conte but uh, how much do you remember about his form that year he scored a bunch of goals I remember that okay but <laughs> right. I know all right, and he, he continues to do so right up until he finally calls it quits, or rather the club call it quits on him because controversially early in the 2011-2012 season, Andrea Agnelli announces to a stockholders meeting that they're not going to re renew the contract of the man who is the symbol of their team. He accepts it kind of with his usual kind of quiet irony. He does, and when we talked about when we talked about this before within the context of Juventus, but, you know, 
after the Avvocato Gianni Agnelli, after he passes, there's that period where, and obviously the, the, the next generation, for different reasons, has, uh, has, has also passed and aren't. So it's like down to the grandkids. And there's two branches of the grandkids. There's the Andrea Agnelli side, and there's the John and Lapo Elkan side. And the John and Lapo Elkan side were the side who took over post-Calciopoli. Because there was that period in between where there was kind of after after Agnelli had passed, and they took over. There was that period when they were run by the triad of Maggi, Giraudo, and and other people who fell upon hard times for mm. the reasons we know. The Alcans were Del Piero loyalists. They very much appreciated him, and they very much stuck with him. Andrea Agnelli, who after he took over, I'm not saying he didn't like Del Piero, but he obviously took the club in a very different direction mm. from the Alcans and again we discussed that within Calciopoli and yeah. suing to get the titles back and whatever and, and ultimately was really successful doing it and yeah but I'm not going to argue with his success but I think he was more business like about it mm. and less emotional about it I think he probably even thought back to you know when he was younger and those 0406 seasons which in his mind Juve won the title su campo and Calciopoli never happened and Del Piero isn't really part of that narrative, right? right? That narrative is is, is Trezeguet, it's, it's Ibra, it's Fabio Capello shouting on the bench. You know, that's what it is. And I think, uh, and he looks at it and he says like, this dude's 35 years old at this point? Like, you know, why does he need to be here? Mm. So, after 19 seasons and an incredible career, second Italian player after Paolo Maldini to participate in seven major international tournaments. You've got four Euros and three World Cups. Third on the all-time list of uh, free-kick goals in Serie A behind Pirlo and, of course, Sinisa. And uh, just title after title with Juventus, European Cup, so many honours. Anyway, it all finally came to an end 13th of May 2012, Juve at home to Atlanta, now in their new stadium, the Juventus Stadium. That day he scores his last goal for Juventus and then in the 57th minute he's uh, he's called off to make his his, his, his goodbye to, to Juve and the, the longest goodbye basically. He high-fives everybody on the pitch, officials, opponents, everybody. Goes and sits down and the game eventually gets started again and then the crowd are just singing... Del Piero sotto la curva, so he gets up and takes their applause. And then, but what, 10 minutes later, he has to go out and he starts doing this lap of honour that go, seems to go on forever. And there's a, a football match going on almost in the background while he right. does this parade, followed by various dignitaries around the four sides of the pitch. There was at least one person there who was kind of annoyed. Uh, Would this be the person who was follically challenged? Who used to be his teammate back teammate. in the Lippy days, right? Yeah, and it wasn't blaming him, but it was just kind of blaming the way it played out. You know, they they were winning their first title since Calciopoli, right? He had arrived, on Antonio Conte here, you know, in the summer. They bought this this guy named Pirlo who he didn't want, or they, they signed him on a free because he didn't fit his, his 4-2-4 formation. He had freaking... Milos Krasic or whatever his name was was like his big summer signing he's like what, what the hell now on top of that we've succeeded in doing this it's been tremendous I don't have any strikers I don't have any top player as he calls them and now there's this freaking circus because Del Piero's retiring I, I promise quite distinctly that he wasn't happy with it. but what it also showed I think is how I, I genuinely think Juve thought that we'll substitute him he'll clap he'll wave and then they'll all focus on the game again and celebrate the fact that, you know, we're winning the title at home on the last day of the season. 
but that's not what happened. They were so, just even though it was the first post-Calciopoli title, the fans there that day were more intent on celebrating Del Piero because I think they understood how Del Piero really represented all of them. Yeah, and how much he'd given. I know the footballers receive a lot, but he'd certainly given. And yeah, if he went on a journey, probably a lot of people went on a journey with regard to Del Piero, a player who, as you mentioned, represented Juve. And it wasn't his fault that he played for a club that inspired hate and, and, and loathing and suspicion throughout the Yeah, and it wasn't 90s. his fault that he was shy and, and, and introverted. And I would say that, I mean, we, we've both encountered him on, on many occasions, and I always found him to be one of the most thoughtful uh, interviewees I bumped into him last May. He's now, as you mentioned, living in Los Angeles where he has a restaurant called Dieci and he seemed really, really happy, very relaxed with... with himself, I think. Exactly. I mean, again, I hate psychoanalyzing, but hey, screw it, let's do it. But um, he does strike you as somebody who, you know, the mama's boy thing was a big theme throughout his career. He strikes you as somebody who was an introvert who went out of his way to try to please everybody throughout his career didn't develop that much of a personality as I said because he played as a striker for Juve during the Calciopoli years and mm. immediately before well at least didn't that in the in the kind of media sense he, he wasn't displaying that much he, I think no. he had personality as he, he wouldn't have got through what he got through no he had a tremendous personality mm. but it was a different kind of internal strength slow burn and I think beyond that I think once he got married once he kind of moved out of it you realize that there's actually a lot of substance to yeah. him. When um, two in seasons in Australia, that takes a bit of... Getting up on stage with Eros Ramazzotti and singing Eros's songs to the crowd, that exactly. also takes a... You know, and, and you realise, I mean, there's there's people in football with different, you know, with different mindsets. And the thing about him is that it's not just a quiet footballer thing, right? Because Paul Scholes was also famously a quiet footballer who never spoke. But Paul Scholes, he gave you the sense that he was sort of a fighter as well. Del Piero didn't give that. It was weird to me. It was even as you could see him sprinting time and again and putting in effort, he never gave that impression. One last thought then on Alessandro Del Piero? Obviously a phenomenal talent and everything else, and a Juve legend, but also somebody who, who opened a lot of people's, people's eyes about the journey and judging people and how people change and evolve and adapt. And, and a guy with layers of complexities that... Many of us didn't know weren't there. So is that what would have been in your letter to your younger self about Del Piero? Then? Yeah, it would have been like, you know, don't put this guy down just because he gets injured. Don't put him down because... He plays for Juve. No, it's not, it's not, the, it's not the playing for Juve. It was that little smirk. It was that. It was, no. No, look. Like, Gianluca Vialli played for Juve too. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's Gigi Buffon played for Juve for a long time. That's right. It, 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 there's a certain personality. It's not like if you play for Juve, it automatically everybody hates you, right? People love Buffon. People love Cannavaro. All right, then. Alessandro Piero, one of the good guys, one of the great players, and an absolute icon of Italian football. And now, next week, we should be joined again by another icon of the World of Calcio, James Horncastle. We'll be back from his plumbing issues. But, Gab, you made it at least. And so did you, listener. I, I use Pimlico plumbers. That's nice. I know, I know you're a big fan of as well. Got to love what they do. Got to love the way they feel. Anyway, I feel we've all been on a bit of a journey ourselves. So why not join us again next Wednesday for another little voyage into the back catalogue of Calcio? For now, from all of us here, it's Arrivederci. Cambiato, di calcio.
You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Cold days like this are cruel. You cough. You splutter, so does your car. It's battery, dead, killed by an icy claw. Will anyone stand up to winter? Yes, you. Come to Halfords. We fit new batteries on the spot from just £15. And we're open late, seven days a week. Find your local store now at halfords.com. Ready for the cold snap? Ready for anything. Halfords, for life's journeys. Batteries sold separately, selected vehicles only, in most stores, opening times vary.